Hello and welcome to another episode of Tell Your Story, Success, Setback, and Tragedy. I'm your host, Eric Reitz. Today's guest is Marcus Kuboy. Marcus grew up in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. He joined the Minnesota Army National Guard as a medic in 2005. After a year of training, he was deployed to Iraq. In March of 2007, while in Iraq, his truck was hit by an IED, killing the driver and sending Marcus home due to extensive injuries. Marcus sustained two broken feet, legs, back, arm, jaw, and a brain injury. He spent 10 months at Walter Reed Medical Hospital. He came home December 2007 and spent six months at the Minneapolis VA. After a long road to recovery, Marcus obtained his master's degree in clinical social work. He has worked as a mental health therapist for a variety of veterans and also worked as a supervisor of a group home for people with severe and persistent mental illnesses. Marcus is currently in the process of starting his own private practice as a mental health therapist. In his downtime, he enjoys binging a variety of shows, spending time with his rescue pup, and playing one of his many nerd games he collected over the years. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on today's episode. Uh, let's uh, let's get right into it and let's tell your story. So first off, grew up in the suburbs. What suburb? I grew up in New Hope. Uh, it was right on the border of Plymouth. So, so it's when, kind of a small little suburb, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, right, yeah, right on the uh, border of 169 and 42nd there. All right, and that's where you grew up, went to high school, and all that stuff. Yeah, we moved to that area when I was in third grade, I believe. Okay, and uh, yeah, stayed there. Stayed there all the way through until I moved out at 18. So did you enjoy school? No. Okay. <laughs> and why not? Um, you know, I mean, if you're if you're talking about high school, I wasn't a real big fan. Um, you know, had that teenage awkwardness thing going. Um, I was a nerd back then, too, and, and uh, much more incognito because, you know, we would get beat up. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's not as... Uh, as vogue as it is now sure but um yeah you know like i when i was in when i was in high school i had um a tendency to get caught up in groups of people that weren't very productive uh when it came to schoolwork and such like that Uh, a lot of them dropped out i decided to stay on I had dug myself a pretty big hole in my first two years of high school, and then I got into an alternative school, and I ended up graduating with a, um, I got a scholarship called the Comeback Kid Award. It was given to kids, one male and one female student, uh, and it was the person who had dug themselves such a deep hole that they probably (laughs) should have dropped out when they turned 16, but instead turned around and, and graduated. All right, so that scholarship was to a college then? Yeah, yeah, it was a $500 uh, scholarship to a college. Very cool. Yeah. So that had to be like a pretty amazing or pretty proud moment for you. I had a lot of help. Okay. You know, I mean, that that's kind of, you know, a, a common thread throughout my life is, you know, a lot of my successes come from having a lot of help and support and, you know, love from others. Okay. So when you say you were a nerd... Even in high school. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, you know, it means that I played 
I played all the games, you know, I played computer games, you know, I had, uh, I had a computer when I was in high school that had the dial-up modem, and we were playing all those <laughs> games, played all the board games like Axis and Allies, and, you know, not just your typical Monopoly or, you know, whatever, but Dungeons like the more and Dragons. Like Dungeons kind of and Dragons. I started yeah. that when I was about 13, and I still, still, doing that? still play Yeah, <laughs> right. yep, every Monday night. I wasn't sure if that was still a thing or not, so yeah, obviously yeah. it still is. Actually streaming now on a page called The Critical Fail. Because we are all just failures when we go at it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you graduate. You have this scholarship. Uh, What year did you graduate? Uh, Graduated high school in 1996. Okay. And then went to college? I did, yeah. When I was um, basically 18 through my mid-20s, I was working full-time and going to college part-time. What uh, what were you going to college for at the time? You know, most of the time I was in college, I was trying to figure it out. Okay. Um, it started out, I wanted to go into psychology. I was always very interested in how people thought, uh, why people would do the things that they would do. Um, and then I kind of switched gears to uh, teaching. I was thinking about becoming a historian and maybe teaching kids, something like that. Uh, I switched gears again. Um you know, and, and actually when I was in my mid-20s, I wanted to become a firefighter. Oh, Christ. <laughs> um, Are you just saying that right now, or is that like a true story? That's actually a true story. <laughs> okay. That's actually, uh, it's actually pretty, uh, pretty profound when it comes to my reasons why I actually joined the Army. Okay. Yeah. Well, then I take my laugh back. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of things that led up to that. But uh, sure. yeah, whenever when I was in high school, I would do those um, career counselor surveys and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and firefighter always popped up on like the top five things to do. I don't know if it was because I, you know, like adrenaline or, you know, do things that are risky. and Sure. Yeah, so that's changed quite a bit yeah. as, as we get older. <laughs> so... You're going to college, and then you didn't join the Guard until 2005? Correct, yeah. So nine years later. I was 27. Oh, getting into it. Not not really late, right? but a little bit after the time that I would say probably a majority of people would join. Would you say that's accurate or yes. not? Yeah. When I was in basic training, there were five-ish, five to ten people who were older than I was. Okay. Like they were, they were taking them up to thirty five at that time. Sure. So, so prior, before we get to that, before we get to the guard, yeah. Um, so you're going through college. Did you obtain a college degree um, prior to the time joining the guard, or I did not? No, I had a lot of credits. I had enough credits to join in um, as a private first class. No, oh. so you um, skipped a couple of ranks there. I did. I did. You know, I had the, uh, I had the drop. You know, and the teardrop when I joined up. Yeah, sort of something something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you worked just different jobs here and there then? Yeah. When you know, I when I got out of high school, uh when I was in high school I did like some cooking jobs, you mm-hmm. know, like at a Perkins. I tried serving tables at a ground round, you know, oh, to wow. age things. Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um and then I ended up getting into management positions. Uh, my first management job, I this is another dating 
occupation. Um, I managed phone book deliveries (laughs) over the five-state area. So I did a lot of traveling uh, throughout Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa. Wow. I did that for about three years. Yeah, yeah. And I quit because they had me on the road for 222 days, and I didn't have any of the Minneapolis or St. Paul deliveries. So I was like, yeah, you know, I don't live to work, you know, I work to live. So I peaced out and... Yeah, well, and then what? Then I found myself in another management position. Uh, this was more retail, and I supervised a Valvoline instant oil change for about five to six years. Oh, wow. So that's a long stint then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So does that bring you up to the time that you enlisted then or not? Yeah, I I joined um, I joined the Army while I was working for Valvoline. Um, I had uh, some... You know, as happens in a lot of careers, you know, I, I started out with one supervisor who was great, loved him. Uh, he got fired because he was to people first, company mm-hmm. second. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got another boss who was pretty good, and then he ended up getting fired. And then I got another boss <laughs> who was just, I think she was a spawn of Satan. Um, <laughs> All right. Just heartless. Sure. Yeah, so, but the company loved her because yeah, well, yeah. right, yeah, because the company first screw people, yeah, you know, make that money, yeah, right. So what? Let's focus on the guard a little bit. What like what led you into wanting to enlist? You know, there were uh, there were two things that specifically uh, come out for me, and um, you know, one of one of which that's not part of the two is you know I got tired of telling people what to do, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like that was kind of my mentality there. I I thought to myself, you know what, I could join the army. I could take orders instead of give them for, for a change. And, and that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. (laughs) Um, Did it, uh, did, did you ever think of going active duty or was it mainly, I just want to do the guard the whole time? You know, like there is like in the mind of a lot of kids, you know, like I, I, I kind of thought about, you know, like maybe trying out for like some special forces mm-hmm. kind of, you know, higher speed kind of thing. No. And I thought to myself, you know, I just want to give it a try first. You know, I want to see what it's like uh, before I fully commit to it. Uh, and I had a friend of mine, um, uh, Jason, he, he was actually in the guard at the time. And... Truth be known, I didn't want to join the Army. I wanted to join the Marine Corps. Okay. I I walked into a Marine Corps recruiter, and I said, I want to be a Marine Corps medic. And the guy laughed at me, <laughs> and he's like, you got to go next door, man. He's like, we don't we don't have medics. Yeah, we have get- corpsmen. They're from the Navy. <laughs> yeah. So so then did that turn you off right away? Uh, You know, I still went next door, and I, I talked to a recruiter there. You know, the Marine that I spoke to, he was like in his late 30s, early 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recruiter that I talked to in the Navy office, he was probably around 23, 24. And I told him what I wanted to do and he just wasn't having it. He was like, you know what, man, you should be an engineer. You know, why, 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 why do you want to be a, a corpsman? Do you like blood? Like, are you into that stuff? Uh, you know, you should be an engineer in a submarine. Like that would be much cooler stories. And, and, uh, you know, he wasn't listening to me uh-huh. or, or what I wanted because I was 27 at the time. Sure. You know, like I'm older than this kid right. and I know what I want to do. So you got a little bit more life experience than this kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, 
I took the test and I just kind of walked away dis- disheartened. Mm-hmm. Um, I went home and I spoke with my, my roommate at the time, Jason. He had just gotten back from a stint in Iraq and he was in the National Guard. And he told me, he was like, man, why don't you just like send an email into the National Guard website? They'll call you back. And I did. I got a call back two days later from a recruiter and all she did, I met up with her and I told her what I wanted to do and she just answered my questions. Oh, you know, she okay. was like, I'm not going to try to push you one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I will try to push you at one point because it's my job. I yeah. need to try to fill a role and I will let you know when I do that. And she did, you know, okay. she was like, okay, you passed your ASVAB. You can be this, this or that. Uh, she said, I'm going to be a recruiter now. I'm going to try to get you to be a, an air traffic controller. Okay. And I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah. She's no, like, don't. okay, good. So what interest, what drew you to wanting to be a medic then? Um, you know, there were two things. Uh, the first thing was I was riding uh, a motorcycle with a group of friends. And we went on like just a quick little 50-mile run. And we got to the destination point, and there were a group of four people that were coming later, uh, about 20 minutes behind us. And one of them, gosh, it was like half a mile away from the destination. He started like just kind of looking off into the horizon off to his left, and he went into the ditch, crashed, broke his collarbone. We all went there to help out, and I hated the feeling of helplessness that we all had. Okay. We all just stood there looking at our friend who's in pain, not knowing what to do, not yeah. knowing what to say. Uh, the uh, the first responders showed up and they kind of, you know, took care of it. And that moment kind of stuck with me. It, it let me, you know, it, it was part of the thing that had me thinking that people who have a medical education, you know, like even if it's just basic medical uh, education, are are more effective, you know, they're just more handy to have around when when stuff goes bad. Uh, the other one was I was I was actually reading The Stand by Stephen King, and there was one scene in there where you had these good guys, and this one guy is in love with this woman, and he goes down f- with severe stomach pain. Uh, they ended up going to a hospital. They found a book. They figured out that it was an appendicitis. They do surgery on this guy. Uh, they find the appendix. They take it out. Everybody's happy. And then the dude dies. Okay. And everybody looked at each other and like, we've spent so much time and so much energy and money into our educations. You know, you had people who are like lawyers. You had people, you know, doing all of these big money things, mm-hmm. but they couldn't help save somebody when it came down to it. So those two things happen at the same time. Um, And the last thing was I actually did go to a fire station and I, and I talked to these firefighters. I was like, Hey, I want to be a firefighter. And they're like, yeah. um, You know, at this time right now we have a, a insane amount of white men. Okay. And you know, he said, if, (laughs) He literally said this. He was like, if you were a uh, Latino female, Latina female, um, you would be considered much more highly. And I was like, well, I, I can't pull that off, man. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and then he said to me, he was like, well, do you have any medical education or any military experience? And I, I was like, no, no. But it got me thinking. I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I could, I could nail both of these birds with one stone. Sure. You know, so all of these kinds of little things happen all around the same time and 
And I went and I talked to my my dad about it, and he was like, "I think it'd be a great move for you." And okay, I'm like, that shocked me because my dad's not you know a pro military uh-huh. kind of person. But uh, yeah, so I did the uh, the little pursuit thing and, and and became a medic. Joined up, yep. All right, found the right found the right recruiter, got in the role I wanted, and so what's we the recruiter's on. name? Do you remember? Oh, you know what I. I, I did remember it, um, but when I came back, a friend of mine uh, joined up, and I I brought him to her, and she had retired out of the re- uh, recruiting role. Okay, but she sent me to a different recruiter, and and I found out that uh, they were still giving out like five thousand dollar bonuses, and she just pocketed it. For you, for me, yeah. Really? I referred, I referred the guy uh-huh. to join the army, uh-huh. and then she pocketed the 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 cash. Really? Probably split it with the recruiter because you know they lie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's kind of a shitty deal. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a common name like Nelson or something like oh, that. All right. Yeah. Well, we don't want to put her on blast then. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I ran into her once after everything happened. Uh-huh. And, you know, she had mixed feelings about seeing me and being a part of that, you know, decision that I had made. And I I just let her know that I would not change a thing. I would still do it exactly the way that I did. All right. And we'll, uh, we'll get to that part of your story. So listeners just remember what Marcus just said is that he would do it all over again. And uh, once you hear the story, you kind of be like, are you shitting me? (laughs) You do it all over again. What the hell, man? Yeah. But we'll get into that in a little bit here. So 2005, you joined. Did you ship mm-hmm. off to basic right away? Yeah, yeah. I joined in uh, January, and I shipped out in mid-February. Where did you go? Where uh, was basic? Fort Knox, Kentucky. Okay. And then was your AIT, where was that at? Uh, AIT for all medic medical personnel is in Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, just outside of well, basically in San Antonio. All right. And so for the listeners out there that don't know AIT, Advanced Individual Training, I don't even know what they call it anymore, if they still call it that. I think they do. But soldiers go to their basic training and they do their 12 weeks or whatever it is, and then whatever job they have in the military, they could stay where they're at, or they go to a specific place for their job. And so for the medical corps, it was at Fort Sam Houston. So how long, so did you graduate basic and then go immediately to Texas then, or not? Yes. Yeah, yeah. there was no holdover. It's anything. like, congratulations, you made basic training, now get over to Fort Sam Houston. Yep, yep. Okay. You get, you get like one one day off, I think, or two days with one night um and and my parents came down and sure. you know we hung out and then how long cuz medic training is a lot longer than like what I went through yeah so so basic training was 9 weeks long um 11 weeks if you count like the 2 weeks in holdover yeah the holdover sure yep, yep. yep. uh waiting for your phase to start up mhm and then once I, I got out of basic training, I got shipped down to uh, San Antonio, Texas, and that training was uh, four months long. Okay. 
So it basically consisted of two and a half months of uh, civilian side EMT training. Mm-hmm. And then all all medics need to combat medics is what they referred to sure. them as. Um, all medics needed to become certified uh, with their EMT basic. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's taken the national test then, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The EMT. Yeah. The national one. Yep. And uh, if you did not pass, you got two more tries to pass. And mm-hmm. then and then if you still didn't make it, then you would get recertified into some other MOS. Okay. Um, and yeah, so that was two and a half months to get the EMT and I and I passed it the first go through. Okay. Um, still probably one of the hardest tests I've taken. Mm-hmm. But and then the next um, month and a half is uh, combat medic training. So it, it basically changes a couple of things, you know, like um, like in the civilian side, if you can't stop someone from bleeding, um, the tourniquet is the last thing that you do. Right. In the army, it's the first thing you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you see someone bleeding, just stick a tourniquet, just on, a tourniquet it on it and yep. figure figure out what's next. Yep. So before we get into the AIT, going back to your basic, mm-hmm. um, is there any one thing that really sticks out as like a memorable moment, whether good, bad, ugly, like just one thing that's like, oh, yeah, I'll never, ever forget that? <laughs> um, well, when I got there, like I had said earlier, I I had the mindset that I wanted to um, – take orders instead of give them. Mm-hmm. And as we had gotten our uniforms and we were in our barracks for the very first time, we had we were lined up in a horseshoe kind of shape and the drill sergeants were walking back and forth, just eyeballing us, letting <laughs> us know like what to expect, what yep. to do. And uh, he said, okay, is there anybody here who is, I forget what they call it, but it's basically like, uh, like a reclass, you know, someone who's going through a second time. Yep. Uh, and this one guy raised his hand and he was like, okay, you're going to be the, the new platoon guide since you know what's going on. Um, the guy wasn't what the uh, drill sergeant asked for. He actually had gone into basic training a series before uh-huh. and dropped out. Oh, okay. So he got like some kind of injury. So he was just starting over again. Then they walk around a little bit more, you know, jabbing and mm-hmm. j- jacking their jaws. Uh, and then this guy looks at me and he was like, he says, private, how old are you? And I said, 27 drill sergeant. And he goes, 27. He goes, all right, you're going to be the assistant platoon guide. <laughs> and he said, he just belts it out. He was like, whenever we're not around, these two guys are going to be our voice. You know, you do what they say. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing happened at AIT too in okay. Texas too. So like I, I was just doomed. You so know? you were there, you wanted to be on the other side instead of giving directions and all of that. You just wanted to be kind of in the background, not in the background, but you wanted to be like everyone else and just, yep, you tell me what to do. I'll do it. Pretty much. Yeah. Like, uh, like the people who had been in before, they all had the same kind of advice and that's, you know, stay under the radar. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because when I was in holdover, I actually became friends with this one cat and he told me, like, he's like, I sign up for everything. He was like, if they ask if you want to do this detail, he goes, I, I do all of the details 
And because of that, I know pretty much all of the drill sergeants and I can like call them up for favors and stuff like that. Like he was playing the game. Oh, yeah. So he yeah. definitely knew the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and he drug me along with a lot of that stuff. And, and I found out that, yeah, there there are angles. I mean, basic yeah. training's all a game. Right. You know, it's, oh, it's absolutely. A, it's a head game. It's just a psychological mind thing. So, yep. Yep. yeah. So, yeah. So you, all right. So that's a story from there. What about at? Uh, 68 Whiskey at medic school. Anything that really pops out at you? Um, hmm. You know, well, when I was at when I was at Fort Knox, the other thing that I thought of right away was uh, I <laughs> I won the uh, Pugil Stick tournament. Okay. So yeah, that was my big you know success story. And, well, yeah, because you're a bigger guy. Yeah, it was the heavyweights. So you know, were so. you were you still? I mean, like the size that you are now, were you like that size when you went through? Yeah, when I when I turned basically 21, 22, I, you know, I was six foot two, 220 pounds, and I still am six foot two, 220 <laughs> pounds. And even when I was going through all of the basic training and everything like that, like my weight did not fluctuate. Okay. So, yeah, like. I'm starting to redistribute some of my weight. You <laughs> well, know, you're just like... a chiseled machine then. <laughs> Been a chiseled machine for many, many years. 16, oh. 16 17 years now. So. Uh, yeah. Well, my buddy, my my belly's starting to uh, <laughs> you know, take yeah, a little is. bit of a... You know what? It is what it is. No big deal. Right, right. So, right, so let's talk about Fort Sam Houston. Anything that pops out? Uh, you know, Fort Sam Houston is, is kind of a blur. Like, there was a lot of really good training. Um, you know what... I was actually just talking with someone about this uh, the other night, and that was um, IV training mm-hmm. and tourniquet training. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I know that you're you you were at one time combat lifesaver qualified, yeah. uh, so you you needed to do all of that kind of stuff sure, too. Yeah, we had like a full week of giving each other IVs. Mm-hmm. You know, so we practiced on each other. Um, you know, like we would get stuck gosh like three to six times a day and then you know go through it all again the next day and then the other one was uh tourniquet training Mm -hmm. so we needed to uh take two cravats and some or one cravat and two popsicle stick things and you know put tourniquets on each other and cinch them up tie them up tight enough so that you know the drill sergeants would come around and they would check for a pulse in the wrist or check for a pulse in the ankle Mm -hmm. And if they still felt a pulse, then you did it wrong. You no. need to make it tighter. And and we all had just bruises oh, I'm sure. all over our thighs, all over our biceps, because it, it would pinch. Yeah, of know? course. Yeah. So good training. <laughs> you know what? You know what you're going to be putting people through. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Well, and I think the least of people's worries when you're putting tourniquets on is, uh, okay, uh, I'm bleeding profusely. Don't pinch me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Or, you know, it, it might move some of that pain away from the actual injuries right. and help get them to refocus on bit. something else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah kind of like major pain, you know, uh, let me break your finger or something like that, you know, take your mind off it or whatever. It's so a, it's a real thing. Yeah. It's a real absolutely. Yeah. All right. So you, you graduate. When did you graduate? Uh, that was, gosh, September. August or September, yeah, I think it was September of uh, of two thousand five. All right. So yeah, went in February, out September, um, and then what happened? 
And then, well, I had some friends drive down in an RV and they picked me up. And, <laughs> okay. And they, Sweet. And, and they towed my motorcycle too, which oh, was nice. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah that's and nice. Then, and then we uh, took the RV to um, Durango, Colorado, and I spent some time off. You know, we did a motorcycle run there. That was nuts. Uh, got back home and I checked in my very first drill weekend and the like the armory was empty mm-hmm. and I was told that um, the vast majority of the Minnesota National Guard was uh, gearing up to go on a deployment and because I was not MOS qualified at the time the lists were made, I was not going to be going. Okay. To which I, I you know, felt some disappointment about that. Sure. And I was like, I just did all this training. I, I'd kind of like to. Like, I make just some use got done. I'm brand new. I know all, all right. of this shit. I'm fresh. I can yeah. still run. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that didn't last long. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. So they said that I was going to be in the rear. Um, and they had me do a PT test because that's what they're doing with all of the rear people. Mm-hmm. And um, I went home. I did half a day of a drill. That was it. Okay. Uh, about two weeks later, I got a phone call that said um, everybody is deploying out basically today. I, that was like October 1st. Everybody was deploying to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I had one month to get all of my things in order because I was going to be a late mober, uh, joining up with either um, a field artillery unit or an infantry unit. Mm-hmm. So it was going to be, I think it was one of the one, two, five out of, oh gosh, down south somewhere. Is it Montevideo? Uh, gosh, it's, it's where the grain belt brewery is from. New Ulm? Yeah. All right. Yeah, something like that. That's Shells Brewing. Shells? Maybe it's Grain Bell, too. I don't know. But Shells yeah, is in yeah, yeah, New Ulm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, but no, I ended up, you know, getting attached to uh, two of the 136. To the Bearcats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and for those of you that uh, maybe didn't read the intro to, uh, well, my pre- pre-episode drop on the Tell Your Story Facebook page or on my Facebook page, uh, Mark and I actually deployed together. So when he says he was attached to an infantry unit, that was the unit that I was attached to because I myself was a late mober as well. And I shipped down at the uh, same time. Mm-hmm. So yep. so you had to, have, I mean, you had to have gone when I went then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, we were in the same little group of people. Um, I mean, I'm like, I'm talking like the bus ride from whatever freaking army armory we left from and like, see you later. Yeah. Bye. And yeah. that was it. So, yeah, yeah. All right. So you are told you got a month, get your stuff together. Mm-hmm. What was going through your mind? Nothing. I Re- mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I had this really, um, I don't know if it's strange or unique or whatever, but when it came to uh, soldiering, I, I felt like I was very effective at just kind of shutting emotions off uh-huh. and, you know, following the target. Okay. You know, like do what they tell you to do. Right. Uh, you know, like. When we were doing the training in Mississippi, I felt that way. When we were doing our missions, um, you know, in Iraq, I felt that way. It was just very much 
you know, don't worry about stuff because if stuff happens, you're not going to be able to change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stuff that you can change, you've been adequately trained to be effective in those scenarios. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I was never really worried. Um, you know, when it came to like being afraid of certain things, uh, you know, like those, those cases were, were pretty infrequent because I, I had a lot of trust for the people who were around me. Uh-huh. You know, I felt like I was going to do whatever I could to, you know, help the people around me. Yeah. And I had complete faith that they were in the same mindset. Okay. So you get down to Hattiesburg and of course we had an advantage because we had already missed one month of that six month train up. Yeah. So, uh, this is a special shout out to all those bear cats and to not even just the bear cats, but the, uh, 34th ID, uh, everyone that had to go down there in September, uh, Mark and I are overachievers because yeah. we accomplished it in five months. That's right. You had to do it in six months. So you're welcome <laughs> for our service. Yeah. Well, we, we, I remember we had to do some catch-up stuff. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So out of that five months that you're in Hattiesburg, mm-hmm. what, of course, there's a lot of memories mm-hmm. from there, but is there anything specific that sticks out in your mind as... Yeah, that's something that I'm never going to forget from uh, just the train up. <laughs> uh, well, the very first thing that pops to my mind is probably not the best thing to remember because it didn't really involve the training or anything. It was more of when all of the training was pretty much done mm-hmm. and the uh, the green light was given for alcohol consumption. <laughs> okay. And, um, yeah, like there were my, (laughs) my team leader peeing outside my window Okay, and me going out there and pushing him over as he's peeing. And, uh, he did basically like a, a stitch line on the wall outside my, where my bunk was Uh and he's great guy, you know, still, still, I thought he was a, a fabulous leader to have mm-hmm. um and yeah like to party yeah okay so so that was that was that was fun um you know the other thing was doing a lot of riding around in bradley's mm-hmm. uh that was an interesting experience sure yeah uh, especially when you can't see anything and you're pretty convinced that they're trying to hit every ditch <laughs> and every hill yeah. uh I did a little riding around in a uh uh one one three so like a Bradley being a uh tracked vehicle mm-hmm. with a turret um you know you can fit supposedly six guys in the back uh-huh. but, but we would get like nine to ten yeah right sure there. of course. Um, but yeah, and the one one three is kind of like a miniature version. Yeah, it's like a that. little brother or little sister kind of yeah. with no turret, just just a personnel carrier. Yeah. Well, we we used them as medics because you could fit four stretchers in there. Sure. So it was like the armored ambulance that yeah. would accompany the Bradleys. Yeah. yeah. Um. So one thing that, and I think of this from time to time, and uh, I can't remember what's the. What's the one shot that they gave us that, you know, it was like a bunch of little pokes. Smallpox? Yeah. So I just, so this is a story about Mark because (laughs) today's episode is about Mark. 
But we get this smallpox thing, and when they give it to you, they're like, oh, keep it covered, don't touch it. You know, if you touch it and then you rub your eyes or you rub your mouth, you're going to get smallpox and, you know, shit like that. And then eventually, down the road, it scabs over, and they're like, don't pick the scab, because if you pick the scab, you know, you're going to get it and it's going to spread and all this. And I don't know if you remember it or not, but you had the scab. Yeah. And then someone gave you like a freaking Leatherman or some shit. Do you remember this or I not? D- I don't. So like you've got this scab and Mark was always goofing around, I guess, and kind of a comedian. And you, you're like, you take the Leatherman and you just go to this scab and you grab onto that scab and you're just like, uh, and you pull it out and this, I mean, it was like this huge freaking scab and like you could yeah. see the divot in your arm and you're just like holding it up and you're just looking at it. And I'm like, that's one of the grossest things I've seen in a long ass time. I'm surprised that you don't, I mean, I guess, and we'll get to that down the road, but like, yeah, you're just, you just grabbed it with the Leatherman and you're just like, yeah. just looking at it. I'm like, man. And then now just another thing that had popped into my mind when we're doing that CLS, the combat lifesaver stuff, yeah. And we're all getting poked and we've all got the IVs and people are squeezing it and all of that. And then if you lower the bag enough, the blood will start running into it. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember you walking out of a bay and you're just walking around. You got the line in, but then you just set the bag up on top of your head and your hat. Yeah. And then you were like, you want to see something cool? And we're just like, okay, whatever. You take that bag off and you'd lower it down. And then, you know, there again, making that noise, you're just like, and then blood's running up into the tube. I'm like, what the, what the hell is wrong with this guy? (laughs) You know, now I don't know if you remember that one either, but those two things like stick out in my mind, of course, many other things, but those two things, and that's even just training, (laughs) you know? So yeah. The IV thing, I did that a lot. Okay. Uh, the, the scab thing, I don't remember, but it does not surprise me (laughs) at all. Well, I'm telling you it happened. I wouldn't just make that shit up just to, just to make it up. No, no, I, there's, there's a lot of things that I was told that I did during those five months that I don't remember. (laughs) Uh, and I completely believe that. Yeah. As you should for those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, why would you make this stuff up just to, you know, I mean, so. Yeah, so that's another story that you can that I've told you because I remember. I mean, clear as day. Yep. And you know, and this is this is almost seventeen years ago now. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's crazy. It so, is. all right. So we finish up our training. Yep. And then we head on over mm-hmm. and uh, fly from Bangor, or we go from Mississippi, right? Didn't we? We left right from uh, Gulfport. Gulfport. Yeah. So from yeah, Gulfport to Bangor, to Maine, Gulfport. right? Gulfport. Um, yeah. We stopped in, was it Shannon, Ireland first? Yeah. But I mean, but did we go straight from Gulfport to Ireland? I think so. And okay. Was, so it was Bangor, Maine on our way back home then. Yeah. yeah well, I didn't go there. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll get, to, <laughs> yeah. God, if I could suck those. <laughs> but yeah. So yeah, that's, that's where everybody comes, uh, on return of the point. Well, most people, okay. I guess. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So we had a 10 hour, 10 hour layover in Shannon, Ireland because the landing gear wasn't working right. And yeah. we were all like, really like, okay. So we're going off to war and we're stuck in Ireland. Yeah. And they're like, the light is red. There's no drinking. Yep. Yep. There's <laughs> that too. Now. And I just saw this, 
on Brian Office. Office, if you listen, uh, shout out to you. But he had posted on his Facebook, and I don't know if you remember this, but when we're getting onto the plane and going through TSA, we're in full battle rattle, body armor, mm-hmm. Kevlar. We've all got our rifles. <laughs> We've all got our rifles. Yeah. And they're taking freaking tweezers from us yeah. because it was contraband. Yeah. It just, it made absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you were around that little group that talked about it, but yeah. So shout out to you, Office, for uh, refreshing my memory on that. So, yeah. so yeah, we're in Shannon, Ireland, finally get the part. Mm-hmm. And then Kuwait. Yes. Yep. So talk about your experiences in Kuwait because was it Beering? Yes. Okay. Yep, Camp Beering. I was. I was digging for that name. I was like, it starts with a B. Don't remember. Yeah. 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 And I might, I might add to add to the story. So we might talk a little bit more about memories shared between us because Mark was my medic. Mark was my medic in my platoon. Mm -hmm. One of the medics. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the other. Was it Rosenau? Rosenau? Rosenau. Uh, for the first part, he was there for training <laughs> yeah. and for the first few months. Yeah, yeah. And then he ended up uh, getting sent home for yeah. personal matters. Yes, yep. And then we ended up uh, getting another one. So we, we actually got the guy that I wanted. You got the guy that you, we got the guy that you wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell do you mean? Well, uh, we needed to replace Rose now with one of the medics from the aid station. Oh yeah, and uh, Brian Ness, my my yeah, yeah. team leader. Yeah, uh, he wanted uh, I forget who what his name what his name is, and he asked me what I thought, and I was like, I like that little you know that little scrapper kid, um, Rasmussen, and and uh, Ness was like, well, um, we're gonna give this one guy a try, and I'm like, okay. So he went on a mission, and he didn't have uh, his night vision, uh, so he needed to use mine. So I gave him my night vision goggles, and he went on the mission and came back and did not have my night vision goggles. <laughs> Where the hell was I? I? Like I don't, I don't know this shit at all. Do I know that? I probably mean, not. My mind probably is not. my mind has gone to shit too. So. This was probably more of a an internal uh, medic thing. Oh, okay. Uh, which is, I didn't understand how all of that worked. The, mm-hmm. the separation between the medics and the uh, people that they're with, that they're right. attached to. Yeah, yeah. But um, so yeah, he ended up losing them. He he left them on top of the roof of a truck, <laughs> and oh, God. and they were just gone. Yeah. So he ended up not be coming uh second platoon second medic uh and then they gave uh rasmussen a try yeah so we got lucky yeah yeah okay doc ras yeah you better listen well you will listen because i'll tell you too but yeah we kind of got lucky Mm -hmm. i guess he he was he was the most okay yeah the most the world's okayest medic yeah super okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) no he was fun though he was very motivated he was super hut hut uh px ranger had every single badge you could ever think of and all of the super high speed equipment he's high speed low drag man oh super hardcore yeah totally hardcore (laughs) (laughs) so let's i mean and we're not going to rehash all of the all of the stuff through deployment. Sure. How about uh, how about out of up until 
uh, March of 07. Mm-hmm. Give me, give me one positive thing. One like, wow, that was really awesome feeling accomplished that stuff. And then give me a, give me one where like this blows. I don't want to be here. This is bullshit. I hate it. So let's start with the low first. Okay. Um, my lows would probably involve uh, getting cysts on my armpits and sides, as well as getting ingrown toenails and ignoring them to the point that they would get infected and I would be put on a profile and, and not able to go on missions for about a week and I could only wear sandals and the, uh, so we were, we were on a Marine Corps base. I think that's important to kind of point out mm-hmm. here. Uh, we were, we were Army, National Guard, and a Marine Corps logistics base. Uh-huh. So the Marines were guarding um, all sorts of stuff, like the PX, and like Chow. the little shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the DFAC. And they would not let anybody in if they did not have closed shoes or mm-hmm. boots. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I had ingrown toenails. I was restricted to only wearing sandals and I could not get food. So yeah. I needed to have other people like get a second plate and yeah, get bring it, it out for me, yeah. you know? So yeah, that, that really kind of sucked. Yeah. I remember, I remember that. I remember you wearing the sandals, but oh, I they also, were nasty. but I also remember now was the ingrown toenail or was it when like, cause didn't you have, didn't you pull a goddamn toenail off of you? Yeah. 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 Was well, it because of the ingrowns? It was, uh, I, I, my toes went ingrown at two different times. And the first time I had, um, I had them both cut down the middle mm-hmm. and, and pulled out and removed. And then the second time I was like, you know, whatever, like this feels like old hat to me. And I was at the aid station and the doc was, you know, cutting down the the middle. And then when it came time to peel them off with like whatever little pliers or Mm -hmm. forceps they had, um, I actually assisted with that (laughs) and pulled off my own toenail. (laughs) Yeah. Good times. Yeah. Uh, the other real fun thing that happened, um, was so we would go on these special missions every now and then and majority of you know the two platoons would kind of go along most of the time and sometimes well some people would stay back and i went on the two missions leading up to this and then we went on another mission and i got to stay back for like four-ish days or so and uh Robin Matson, uh, Mad Dog. Mad Dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he knocked on my door at about 10, 10 30 in the morning, and I was watching a movie on my, you know, laptop. Mm-hmm. And he says, he was like, Hey, I was just down at the ECT, the uh, entrance control point, uh, basically doing gate guard duty. And he said, We've got a bunch of bananas down here. And I was thinking about doing a banana eating contest would you be interested in that and i was like no dude that's that's freaking stupid that's the dumbest idea i've heard sure and then he walked away and i started thinking about this 
And I was like, I bet that son of a bitch is trying to, you know, get two people to do it so he can watch these two idiots and and make fun of them. And I I just started getting kind of irritated about that. Mm -hmm. So about 20 minutes later, I found him and I was like, hey, mad dog. He's like, yeah. I said, were you planning on doing that banana eating contest? And he was like, well, no, not really. And I was like, you think I was when you came to my door? And he was like, no. And I was like, okay, I'll I'll tell you what, man, I'll I'll do this stupid contest if it's against you. (laughs) And he was like, okay. So we sat down, and uh, long story short, we lined up 20 bananas and ate pretty much all of them. <laughs> yeah, I was. I had a banana lead pretty much the whole time, and he caught up at the very last banana. Uh-huh. And I got the, the last bite in when he was halfway through the last one. And, um, you know, I was like, okay, just chomp, chomp, swallow, open up my mouth to show that it's empty and I did that and I opened up my mouth and I immediately projected <laughs> banana puree. Um, I almost hit Steinmetz. Like he, he jumped up and ran away. Uh, and Mad Dog immediately projected his banana puree. <laughs> oh, um, God. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Good times. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. It was all on, it was all videoed at one time. It, yeah. was, it was on YouTube for like I'm, a year. I'm sure there's videos out there that we'd be able to pull up and all of that stuff and and if i can find any um i'll attach it to this podcast on uh, tell your story facebook page so people could click on them and uh you know even like doc rass's uh no drinking um that one that because that's a good one too so yeah um all right so was that a low? <laughs> was that banana eating? Was that a low? <laughs> you know, that was that was a memory made. That'll okay. Never, you know that that that'll that'll survive Alzheimer's. <laughs> so, so how about like one like accomplishment or something that you feel that was like, yeah, we really we really did something here. You know, I always felt good about what we did at the two uh, villages that we were basically at every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, tourist town and trailer town. Uh, one thing that I personally did was I, I had a really fun, good relationship with the kids. Yeah. You know, like I, I would, uh, I would show up and, you know, like I would give the kids, you know, candy or they would call it chocolate, Mr. Mr. Chocolate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but at, at, at one point, uh, it was probably like, halfway-ish through um, my time there. Yeah, okay. Oh. I'm glad that you uh, caveated that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's not the same as right. everyone's. Yeah. Um, well, not the same for Jeff Anderson either, but we'll get to that too. So. You're right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, like I would, I would meet up with the kids and I would throw up the rockers and I would say, cool boy! Yeah. And uh, and it got to a point where whenever I would show up, they would come around the truck and they'd throw up the rockers and they'd all be like, cool boy. (laughs) And um, and yeah, it it actually got to the point where kids were doing that whenever they would see a truck because guys from first platoon would come up to me and they're like. Cool boy, why why are the kids like running up to us like yelling your name? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, my little cultists, yeah, man. Those are like, my, yeah, that's my that's my group. Don't mess with me, you know. I got I got a following, little little kitty cult. Yeah. So now let me ask you this. Yeah. You know, even though it was a long time ago, you know, two thousand five, two thousand six, mm-hmm. like, and this comes across my mind, not frequently, 
but it floats in there every once in a while. Like, I wonder where those kids are now. I have that thought. Yeah. Like, Like, are they still there? Are they still alive? Are they not? What are they doing? Like, did they survive after we left? Because, I mean, they're living in some pretty horrid conditions. Yeah. But now, to throw that in, um, Snapchat, uh, I've actually gone and searched on the Snapchat map to, like, Lake Habania, to Mm -hmm. tourist town. And if you haven't done this, do it. Because it's completely different. Hmm. I mean, I watch Snapchat stories from like Baghdad and Fallujah and Ramadi, and it's robust. Like people hmm. are driving vehicles and they're dancing. And tourist town is a freaking tourist destination. Really? Like that little disco out, disco out in the point, yeah, uh, where we'd go swimming. Um, probably not the smartest thing to go swimming in Lake Habania. I never swam in it. Uh, neither did I. I stayed <laughs> up on, on shore while, uh, you know, I was in a gunner's hatch. Yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, it's completely redone and people are out there. It looks like they're on vacation, mm-hmm. having fun and all of that. So, like, it's been rebuilt. So, to me, it feels like a little bit of an accomplishment seeing it now in 2022, 2021, um, and then just seeing that that movement about because it was so so different mm. when we were there. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. I'm so, not real surprised. No. At that and and yeah, pretty happy to hear that. So if you haven't, check it out. I will. And if you don't have Snapchat, you got to download it now just so you can go on the map and you can see exactly where we're at. Mm-hmm. And the first time I looked at it and I see that that disco out on the point, I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. I was right there. Yeah. And everybody's having a good time. That's nuts. That's, it's hard to grasp. It's It's really hard to grasp. Yeah, absolutely. I've done the Google map thing. Oh yeah. And looked at where our base was and yeah, it's desolate there. Yeah. It's completely different. Yeah. It's just weird. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's get to March of 2007. So walk me through that. Well, March, um, <clears throat> March was um, so probably a month before that. That was when we had gotten the news that we were being extended. Mm-hmm. So most of the people that had spent six months at Hattiesburg uh, and we're going to do another, we're going to do a full year in Iraq. So that's like a total of 18 months. Uh, we were told that we were going to be extended for an additional four months. We were supposed to be coming back uh, like mid-March. Yeah. And, and I remembered feeling little irritated because it was like early to mid-March uh, we would be getting ready for like a morning mission and it was already hitting like 80 some degrees in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm a big hairy dude, you know, like, <laughs> it doesn't take much for me to break a sweat. And I was already doing that in March and I was yeah. like, come on, this is just going to suck. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, you know, we just did what we were doing, you know, like just keep on doing the mission some a lot of people had a huge hit to their uh morale 
uh, you know, people with like families and kids and girlfriends and, you know, like they've been away from them for so long. And, and I, I remember trying to do whatever I could to just kind of help people, you know, keep their minds right. I remember going on Amazon and buying a bunch of board games mm -hmm. and just trying to get as many people to have eyeball to eyeball interactions with each other doing things that are fun. Yeah. You know, we did a lot of Settlers of Catan. We were playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. I think I've got a video of that too on my hard drive of you and uh, Krupke. Mm -hmm. And before we get into going on this mission mm -hmm. that completely changed your life, mm -hmm. um, it'll be a little bit of a, do you remember that? When you and Krupke were in our can, oh yeah, playing that, oh yeah, yeah. So to set this up for the listeners, when you're in Iraq, at least where we were at, we were in two man, what we call them, two man cans. So it's two two troops, and uh, my roommate Jason Krupke, he was he was a nerd as well, and uh, him and Kuboy, him and Mark would uh, <laughs> play this Dungeons and Dragons, and I didn't understand it, and they would be talking and. All of this, and I'm like, so, like, you guys are playing right now? Yeah. And I'm like, well, where the hell's the board, or where's the, what? Oh no, no, you you don't you don't need that. And I'm like, I go, what what the hell's the point? And I'm listening to these guys, and you're talking about casting some sort of spell, and he's like, well, then I'll be, I'll be talking in some different gibberish language and he he talks in his gibberish language and i'm like jesus christ what the hell is going on in my room and he's like when i'm saying this i'm actually putting a cast or a spell on you or deflecting it or something i'm like oh my god these guys are a couple of losers <laughs> and we'd already been in country you know for a long time yeah. and i'm like so i had i recorded it on my shitty little camera and i gotta i gotta see because i think i still have that i still have my external hard drive upstairs. I should really plug it in here yeah. and look at that stuff because there's a lot of videos on there, shitty quality. But yeah, you're talking total nerdism with <laughs> casting those spells. So yeah, that was that was Krupke's thing. He he was talking about playing a wizard that yes. had a uh, stuttering problem, <laughs> but he would hide his casting through his stuttering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Oh my god! Yeah. Just and you know what? On that note, I actually brought you something. This is a twenty-sided dice. This is what you need to play Dungeons and Dragons. So if you're ever in an area where they just kind of have a breakout D and D game, uh -huh. you got your own dice. So I'm prepared. I've had that dice probably since I was thirteen. Wow. Mm-hmm. And after we're done recording, we'll see if he takes it back or not. So. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope. Oh, I've got more where that came Well, from. I appreciate that. And that's going to go right upstairs, right next to uh, some of the uh, stuff that I brought back with me. So Beautiful. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad, I'm glad that we talk about the Dungeons and Dragons you're, and stuff. You're so. pretty nerdy for liking it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so welcome. All right. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's go to this mission in March. Yeah. And I've done enough talking, so um, bring the listeners up to that mission up until that uh, fateful day. Sure. Um, you know, I so we were on a uh, on another 
special mission where we were outside of our area that we normally worked in. And we were in, um, you know, if memory serves correctly, we were in a rural area of Fallujah and we were taking over an outpost that the Marines were manning. Um, so those Marines that were manning that area were going on a special mission of their own and we were going there to cover their base. Uh, you know, I don't know how much of this is true. A lot of this stuff is above my pay grade. Um, but I was told that the, uh, the Marines who were there maybe spent like an hour a day in their sector. Uh, they basically let people do whatever they're going to do. You know, you don't bother us. We don't bother you. They kind of had this agreement thing going on. Uh, and then we were out there all the time. Yeah. Like they, we were out there in full force. We had all of our Bradleys out there. We had just trucks. We were out there 24 seven. Uh, we had, you know, three different, uh, working patrols. Um, and it just felt overly ambitious. Like, mm -hmm. what are we trying to accomplish here? Mm -hmm. Uh, during that mission, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if we were shot at, but I know that there was one time that we were mortared. Um, got damn close to. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're bringing them in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, uh, Jeff Anderson and I had walked pretty far away from everybody, just the two of us. And we actually came to like the Euphrates, uh, river and saw some people on the other side of it spot us and they started like kind of moving around like you know ants in a shake and farm mm -hmm. uh but then like jeff and like looks at me like we should probably get heading back and i'm like yeah we probably should <laughs> and as we're walking back like that's when we started getting mortared yeah you know that that's how i remember it at least mm -hmm. um so on the 23rd you know that was that that fateful day yeah uh, I remembered, so the, the medics who were there, it was, um, it was, uh, Jeff Woodford and Brian Ness, and we were all kind of like changing patrols. Uh, Jeff had been doing the, uh, midday ones, which were considered to be the most dangerous. I think he had done the two days before. And I told him, I was like, man, I'll, I'll take the, the danger one this time. Mm -hmm. Like you hang out, Joe. So I went on that one. Um, it was, uh, it was set up a little bit differently. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because for the first like two to three months that we were in Iraq, I was always in the first truck, yeah. you know, uh, with, uh, Sergeant Bacala, who was our platoon sergeant. He would be like, Oh boy, you're going to get in the truck with me. And I'm like, All right, let's go, you know, and we were just feeling kind of invincible at the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, after we're, our, group had been hit by a handful of roadside bombs. Um, you know, like I, I wasn't as excited to get into that first <laughs> truck anymore, sure, yeah. but, uh, like this was a, a very different mission. We had Bradley's with us. Um, our platoon leader, uh, Paul Lee, fabulous guy, you know, love him to death. Hey Paul, how are you? Yes. Um, uh -huh. 
So Paul was like, good boy, you know, we got a, we got a vehicle in front of us. You know, why don't you jump in my truck? And I was all for it. I was like, yeah, man, this is great. And I remember like saying, I like, I used to ride on first trucks all the time anyways. Mm-hmm. Like, this is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I remembered uh, Greg sitting in front of me and me kind of harassing him as we're pulling out, kind of like flicking his ears and just kind of, I was feeling squirrely. Just that typical shit that would always happen before a mission. And- yep. Yep. Putt Breeze was in the gunner yeah. uh, and I was like smacking him around, <laughs> um, you know, and harassing. I was harassing everybody. Uh, we also had uh, another officer who wasn't uh, getting out very much yeah he was and i can't even remember his name wilson yes because he came to rti when i was there but anyway yeah back to yep. and then so it was so yeah was, paul was like he's like we got a bradley in front of us you know we come hang out we'll you know have a mission together and and i'm like yeah man all for it so we went on a mission um i don't remember a lot of the details of what we did during that mission i know that we stopped at a couple of different places like there was this like busted down oil refinery thing that mm-hmm. we kind of checked on and got all of our boots black <laughs> um but then, yeah, so then I, I, I'm i pretty sure it was when we were done and we were kind of like packing up to head back. Uh, that was when the truck that I was in got struck by an IED. Um, the IED was in a culvert um, underneath the road, so there was like no way that we were going to be able to see it. Um. So the, uh, I don't remember anything that happened. Mm -hmm. So all of my reports are secondhand in nature, uh, but they're very consistent. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I trust them to be real and true. Uh, but I was told that the, the people who were in the truck behind us saw the, the bomb hit the truck. Uh, they said it picked the truck up 25 to 30 feet in the air and it landed upside down, like on the shoulder. Um, I was told that they were convinced that everybody in the truck was dead. Like all five people were going to be KIA. There's no way mm-hmm. that anybody would be able to survive what just happened. Uh, so. Jeff Anderson, he was in the truck behind me. We had the highest ranking uh, person in our truck, so he was the second highest ranking, so he ended up taking over control of the patrol. Mm -hmm. And he said that he was with the people in that truck. He got out with the uh, other dismounts, and they were extremely cautious about getting hit by a secondary IED because that was one of the tactics that they had used. And uh, and we actually had a guy get hit by a secondary IED and end up losing his leg. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were very worried about that, and they were very cautious on approach, um, which is the right move in that kind of situation. Yeah. yeah. Once they deemed that it was safe and they weren't going to be getting hit by any kind of secondary IEDs, they approached um, they approached the uh, the truck. Um, and this kind of reminds me, you know, another accomplishment that we had that I had um, was I was also the uh, combat life saving trainer. Mm-hmm. You know, so I needed to create a course 
every month and make sure that everybody in our company um, attended it. Uh, and one of those in, in those trainings, one of the things that I, I trained people to do was if someone is unresponsive, if you think they might be dead, don't assume that they're dead until you do something to cause pain to them. In the civilian side, you do a sternum rub. Uh, we had body armor on, so that's not a thing. Right. Uh, but I would, I would, you know, prompt people to like pull on their earlobe, you know, like real hard or pinch the webbing of their hand. And this comes into play because as Jeff was coming up, he, he, he sees the truck. Um, he sees, uh, Greg, uh, lying in the road. Uh, he sees me lying on in the road, uh, with him. Uh, he has injuries that nobody would be able to survive right. no matter what. Yeah. Uh, he sees me near him and <clears throat> to my understanding, like I'm, you know, in rough shape, you know, they're got blood all over, whatever. My feet are going at angles that they weren't meant to go. And he naturally assumes that I'm also dead. Mm -hmm. And he hears, you know, people starting to yell from the truck, you know, and rightfully so. He thinks I got to go get those guys. If they're still alive, right. I got to get them. But then training kicks in and he was like, well, Kuboy might be alive. And before he went over to check on the guys, he comes over, does what he was trained to do, except he kicked me in the nuts. <laughs> and, okay, so yeah. you got to understand, I'm laughing. I mean, because this is tragedy, but this is this is how a lot of people deal with it. Oh. And just you commenting, <laughs> I can't For stop sure. laughing. For sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He kicked me in the nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know this. The first time I, I saw Jeff, it was probably like two and a half years after this happened. I'm up in Walker at an American Legion and he's sitting at the bar and I pull up next to him and I first time I'd seen him. Mm -hmm. And he was like, hey, man, good to see you. Do you remember the kick? And I'm like, no, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he tells me this the story that I just basically yeah. repeated. Yeah. And he was like, "Yeah, man." He's like, "I I gave you a good kick in the nuts and <laughs> and you groaned." And I said, "Mason, Vic Mark, get on get on Kuboy. I'm going to head over to the truck." Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> So that was that part of your training where you telling people to kick each other in the nuts or You know, it it taught me to never underestimate the creativity of an infantryman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that is how the infantry do. So that's a huge shout out to you, Jeff Anderson, uh, who throughout the deployment we called boss. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess thank you for kicking Mark in the nuts. <laughs> because, I mean, who knows? It's about the only time you can do that to a man and he thanks you for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. You got a freebie on me. Yeah. Next one. Next one's going to cost you. Yeah. I think it's about time you pay him back, though. That'd be kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So continue on from that. And obviously, you don't remember a whole lot. I, I don't. I don't. So, I, like, every all the information you're getting is from, like, reading the reports. Um, or from most people. of it's from people who were there. Okay. Um, okay. I know. I know you. You told me some things. You know, the first time that we saw each other again. Uh, you know, Jeff. 
Jeff Woodford and Brian Ness, like we were both, we were all very close. Um, Mm -hmm. And they had both said that when they got the call, uh, they showed up with the uh, QRF quick quick response force. Yep. Um, they showed up with QRF and they had gotten the report that a truck had been hit and there are there is one uh, killed in action, uh, four wounded, and in their mind they're like, okay, so we know there's one dead. There's four casualties. We're gonna have to help Kuboy. Uh, with these casualties yeah. like he's going to have control of the situation and we're just going to show up and support him yeah. uh, and when they showed up and they saw that i was one of the casualties um one of the more significant of the casualties yeah. like they they said that, like their heart just dropped yeah. you know they're like well shit and uh <laughs> And Jeff, he he's told me this story before, which is you know I mean it's it's a really really dark situation, mm-hmm. but there's still you know some humor to be found here and no. there. Uh, he says you know I'm talking to Kuboy like he's my best friend, and you know he's all messed up, and and I'm I'm asking him, Kuboy Kuboy how you doing man, and and he would just mumble back at me, bra bra bra, and and I and he would say no man give me some words you know like tell me tell me how you're feeling tell me what's going on and i would just mumble back at him and and then he would say he's like i had no idea that his jaw was broken in eight freaking places and me telling him to you know tell me how you're doing is just causing more pain and and probably frustrating him (laughs) um but yeah no he they 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 all did a real bang up job yeah you know even even mason mason and vic mark mason i the the CLS training uh, that happened right before that mission, I think it was about like a week or two before that mission. Uh, Mason was doing IVs on Krupke, mm-hmm. and you know Krupke calls me over and he was like, "Hey man," he's like, "Mason has tried to stick me like three times. He keeps going through my vein." <laughs> Can you like coach him? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll coach him. So I'm like coaching him and I'm telling him all the techniques and, and he tries it again and he goes through his vein again. And I'm like, okay, man. I was like, try my arm. I've got great veins for it. Um, I can help you with it. And he stuck me probably three times going through my vein every time to which I called him a, a sewing machine. And I was like, dude, you're a freaking sewing machine. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to push you through and hope to God if I ever get hurt, you don't show up. <laughs> and sure as shit, uh, you know, Mason and Vic Mark were the guys who mm-hmm. were initially working on me and they both did a bang up job. And yeah. as, as far as I know, um, it's my understanding that they, you know, like I had, because I, I was a medic, I didn't hold like all of the extra ammo and stuff yeah. like that. Like I had extra tourniquets, I had extra bandages and that was what they used. They used all of my gear on me and yeah, cut my, cut my pants off and put tourniquets on each leg and, and, um, yeah, it was good to go. So <clears throat> to, before we get to the extent of your injuries, sure. And I know we've talked a little bit about on my side mm-hmm. of it. So when you guys got tasked with this mission, um, it was like mainly um, us, like mainly first first squad. Mm-hmm. But there was a few of us that were left behind for whatever reason. I don't know. Right. 
and I was one of them that was left back on this little fop. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was Viking, wasn't it? Something like that, or yeah. Cobb or Cop or Combat Outpost, whatever they called it. Yeah. But, you know, we, I mean, we had done hundreds of missions, mm-hmm. you know, up to that point. So we're like, all right, well, not exactly sure why we're staying back, but all right, we'll see you guys when you get back. Right. And I remember us playing cards or just chilling like villains. Watching and, Scrubs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we you hear the radio chatter that um, IED strike, and it was Ho Flicker on the radio that was calling out back to um, our little talk. And at the time, you know, battle rosters, and for listeners, uh, battle rosters is each one of us would have our battle roster number, which is our the initial of our last name with the last four of our social security, and that was on our helmet and other numerous places. So you weren't hollering out uh, the person's actual name. So they're like, we have, at first it was like we have one KIA, four wounded, and then they start doing the nine line and calling out the roster numbers. And I swear to God, they got that roster number wrong like two or three times. They say roster numbers, the KIA. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we're mentally going through and like, okay, so so-and-so, so-and-so is on that mission, on that mission. And I remember saying, Mason, Mason's on the mission. He, that was the KIA. And then they said, no, that's incorrect. Here's the correct one. And then finally they got to Romeo, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we're just going through the list. And we're like, Fuck. It's rewar, and we're just all staring at each other like, Jesus Christ, yeah. And we're we're completely helpless because we're on that outpost, mm-hmm. and they come running over. They're like, "Get your shit on, we're fucking going," mm-hmm. and we're scrambling to get our shit on, we're like throwing weapons and grabbing ammo, and we're like, and it wasn't all that far away, but it was still far enough away that it seemed like eternity for us to get there. Cause you know, medics are scrambling. We're scrambling. We're getting all of our freaking gear. We may need to make sure we have this shit Mm -hmm. to get out to you guys, but we didn't want to leave anything behind. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like a year and a day just to get out there. And if I remember correctly, I don't, I, I, a lot of this is like, it's very foggy, um, obviously not as much as it is to you, <laughs> Sure, but there's bits and pieces that stick out. And by the time we got out there, I believe that the Kazavak had already taken you away, I think. And they had already um, gotten Greg and had already put him in the back of the Bradley. And you were gone. I think almost everybody was loaded up on the Chinook or whatever the hell the Marines call them. Mm -hmm. But just rolling up that scene was fucking chaos. Mm. And I never saw you. I never saw Greg. Um, Never saw the other three in the truck. Because I think you guys were already gone at that time. I think so. And so we had no idea. We didn't know the extent of any injuries because like... You know, boss is there and like just it's fucking chaos. Mm-hmm. And 
like I hadn't found out for the longest time the extent of your injuries or Lee's or Wilson's or Putbury's injuries, mm-hmm. you know, um, until after the fact. So let's go back and let's talk about your injuries before we fast forward to wherever you're medevac to. Sure. And we did it into the intro, but I think the listeners need to hear it from you. Sure. As to the extent of your injuries. And you have a laundry list of <laughs> yeah, injuries. Yeah. So let's let's go through them. Just tell me the injuries. Well, you know, to uh to to give a little more context to okay. to the uh significance of the blast, um I was told that so we were we we're driving around in an up armored Humvee. Uh the doors were combat locked, so there was was it two? Two Things. I think down by the down by the seat and then yeah. one up top. Yeah, I think two, was what two was. steel, you know, like latches to yeah, like so combat lock. So the doors, doors wouldn't blow off. Right, right. And and the doors had big steel plates on them, so they weighed like around 150 some pounds, um, you know, give or take. I was told that they had found one of the doors about 100 meters away from the blast and they had never found the second door. And that was the, that was my door and it was Greg's door. And we were both ejected out of, out of the door that had just gotten blown off. Um, I broke most of the bones in my right foot so my like all four of my metatarsals were were broken when i woke up i had uh six different pins i had four pins in um all of my toes except for my my big toe and um and i had two pins going like horizontally in my tarsal area i broke a couple few bones in my left foot i had an open open compound fracture of both my uh tibias and fibula fibulas of of both legs so basically both of my shins were broken um i broke my my back my it was my my fourth lumbar so if you have your your pelvis which is your hips uh, you have your L5, which is connected to your pelvis. The L4 is the one that is right on top of that. So it's like the thickest of your, your backbones. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was broken. And when I looked at the x-ray, it looked like if someone had an old cookie that was hollow and they stepped on it, like there was just, it was cracked in multiple, uh, places. I had an open fracture of my left arm. Um, and then my jaw, my jaw was broken in, I think eight places and I had nine fractured teeth. I had, um, I had stitches in my head, um, on my, you know, the, the front of my kind of forehead ish top of my head. And then I had a bunch of scars on the back of my head. Uh, the, I was told they were, they were kind of like in the shape of a jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> I never got a chance to really look sure. at them, but, yeah. uh, but I, I do remember waking up in the hospital bed and my head being stuck to the pillow because, you know, my head's bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, and, and something that's kind of interesting. I didn't find out about this until, 
gosh, I ran into, I ran into a, a one of the aid station medics who's, who's a, a great, great guy. Uh, I ran into him at a foot locker, like just randomly. Mm-hmm. And I get most of my shoes from, uh, from the VA. So me going into a shoe store is kind of a rare thing. It's like eight o'clock at night. I, I'm trying to get house shoes, you know, because I have hardwood floors. And if I walk on hardwood floors, I, I, my feet don't tolerate it because they're still kind of banged up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I run into this guy and he was like, Oh, Hey, so do you remember, uh, what happened that when, when you got brought in? And I'm like, no. And he goes, do you remember the doctor that was there? There was a, a Navy surgeon who was touring, uh, the, the base and she was about to take off. Now, which base is this at? This is uh TQ. Camp Takatum. Okay. So this is at the double STP, yep. you know, the, the surgical shock trauma yep. Yep. place. Um, and I was like, no, no, I have, I have no idea. And he said that this surgeon was doing an inspection. She heard the call and she stayed to see if she could be of assistance. I show it up and my legs and my feet are in extremely rough shape. Um, and she basically took over and like clamped off all of my veins and all of my arteries and got me packaged and ready to be shipped to Balad. And had she not been there, there would have been a good chance that the, uh, that the, the docs who were there would have just amputated my legs, you know, just cut them off because they're in rough shape mm-hmm. and package it up that way and then send them. So. You know, one thing I, I I like to say is, you know, like the the blast was a terrible thing. Getting hit by an IED, like no one wants it to happen. Mm-hmm. And most of my experiences that are directly connected to that have been pretty miraculous and um, positive in a lot of ways. Sure. So, and that's one of them. You know, yeah. it's just very serendipitous that she was there. Yeah. You know, I'm like, walking. I, I still have nine toes today because of her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, that's great. It's yeah. better than having eight or better than having just eight. Right. 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 Or, yeah. or none. You know? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So you get, you, you get, you come back to TQ, which is our base that yep. we're, that we spent most of our time at. Yeah. They package you up, send you to Balad, yep. which is Baghdad. Yep. I guess they put me into a coma. They, okay. they induced me into a coma uh-huh. because I started becoming resistant. Okay. So you go to Balad. Yep. And then ultimately, were you, where were you sent from Balad? Uh, that was uh, Langstuhl, Germany. Yeah. So, yeah, about, I think it's about 50, 30 to 50 miles away from Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and that's where a lot of casualties will ultimately go to for like out of the war zone type treatment. Yeah, that's that's the uh the next echelon of care mm-hmm. uh that takes place out of country. Yeah. So the the two main hospitals stateside are Walter Reed and Brook Army Medical Center, Bamsey and San Antonio. Mm-hmm. That's also where I did my clinicals for mm-hmm. being a medic. Sure. Um but yeah, no. So Frankfurt or uh, Longstuhl, Germany. It's uh, the the hospital there is just this tiny little three story hospital. Uh, but that's where all of the people got the the 
the care needed that is most um, high priority yeah. before getting shipped uh, stateside. Yeah. And, and then that, that's where I uh, that's where I came out of the coma. That's okay. Where they woke me up. So is that your first memory is in Germany then or not? Yeah, yeah. To my understanding, I don't um I don't remember anything leading up to that. And when I when I came out of my coma, that that experience was pretty uh, unique, mm-hmm. if you will. Okay. Uh the way the way that I explain it is I remembered looking looking down um, at a hospital room, and and I remembered seeing like two beds in there, but I was specifically focused on one, and it felt like a dream. It felt like I was having a dream, and I was looking at this one person, and you know how like when you're dreaming, your experiences are yours. Yeah. Your thoughts are yours. They originate from inside your head and you are an active participant in whatever you're doing in your dream. Mm-hmm. And that was how I felt looking down at this one body. And the feelings that I had that were coming from me, originating from me, were, my God, I am so grateful that I am not him. Uh-huh. I am so grateful that I am up here and he's down there because if this guy pulls through, he's going to have a long, hard recovery in front of him and it's going to suck. Yeah. And then I had this overwhelming feeling that came from outside of me. And it, you know, it was like an emotion that had a narrative to it. Uh, and that was, I had this overwhelming, pressing feeling that, no matter what happened, everything is going to be okay. And I, I can't tell you how convinced I was of that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I woke up. I, I opened up my eyes and it felt like I opened up my eyes right after I had had that dream. And I looked around and I didn't know where I was and I was trying to figure, trying to figure it out. And the first thought that I had was, I think that I'm supposed to be in Iraq right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I, and I looked at the walls and I thought, yeah. And if I'm supposed to be in Iraq, I'm pretty sure this isn't it because it, it doesn't stink like the desert. <laughs> and the, the walls of like the double STP or the aid station are like made of plywood. Yeah. And this is like concrete, like mm-hmm. this is some nice stuff. And and then I saw a doctor and I saw my dad standing behind him. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm definitely not in Iraq. Yeah. And then I thought I need to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. So I start doing like a full body assessment. Um, and just like you're trained to do, I started with my head. And I felt the insides of my teeth with my tongue. I couldn't open my mouth. I thought that was weird. But when I felt my teeth with my tongue, they felt sharp and jagged. And the first thought that I had was, well, gosh, maybe I was in a blast. And they, and I've been in a coma this whole time. And they, they didn't brush my teeth. I got cavities. <laughs> okay. Like, that's my first rational thought about this. Sure. All right. Uh, and I was like, no, that, that's probably not realistic. That's probably not what happened. Um, chances are I was in a blast and it blew my teeth out. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about a friend of mine who I had had who 
had, you know, a, a problematic history with drugs and he, you know, did meth, uh, in his early twenties and he had lost all of his teeth. He then got sober, went through recovery, turned his life around for the better and got dentures. He got a full set of dentures and I thought about him and I thought, you know what? If he can, uh, if he can get dentures and look good, I can get dentures and I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be totally okay. And then I continued on that body assessment and I, I held up my left arm and it felt really heavy and I didn't know what was going on there. I held up my right arm and that felt fine, which I was grateful for because I'm right handed. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then I started shifting like my shoulders and my back. Um, and then I, I realized that I couldn't feel my legs. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe, maybe I was in that blast and maybe it blew my legs off. And about a month before that, I had watched an episode of My Name is Earl. And in that episode, they had a quad amputee as a character. And he was chasing Earl across this front yard with these springy ass, uh, prosthetic legs and he had prosthetic arms and and the guy was completely agile with these mm-hmm. and i thought to myself i was like well if i lost my legs i'll just get prosthetics yeah. like I'll, i've seen what they can do mm-hmm. I, I don't have anything to worry about everything's gonna be okay so that that was the common thread that was going on when i woke up and after meeting a lot of people who have gone through some real significant injuries, I, I also realized that I am kind of a, an anomaly in that sense, kind of an outlier, because most people who wake up, they're, you know, filled with, you know, sense of dread, sense of foreboding, mm-hmm. um, you know, anger. Uh, and I was just like, OK, well, we're going to have to figure out what's next. Right. Uh, the other mentality that I had. Uh, that I think really served a lot of my recovering from these injuries was the simple fact that I was a medic and I impressed on all of my infantry guys to listen to what I say, do what I say and believe what I say, regardless if you think it's true or not, regardless if you think it's right, wrong or whatever, trust that I'm doing this for your own benefit. Like if you think you're dying and you're bleeding to death and I say you're okay, believe me when I say you're okay because it's going to help you survive. Yeah, for sure. And if I'm laying down and I'm bleeding to death, tell me that I'm okay Mm -hmm. because I need to hear that in order to survive. Right. As I was going through my recovery, I did everything that the doctors told me to do. Like they would make a suggestion. I just followed it. I was like, I, it doesn't matter to me. I will be your toy soldier throughout this whole process. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. How pretty, long pretty how, fortunate. how long did you spend in Germany? I was there for um I think it was like 4 days. Okay. 4 or 5 days. I think I was awake for 3. And the first thing that I did was I I started uh I started out by having short-term goals. Like my first goal that I had was to get these tubes out of my nose because they would uh they would kind of fill up with water just from, you know, the warmth of your breath and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And that would collect. And then I would feel like I'm kind of suffocating. So my first goal was to get these tubes out of my nose. And once that happened, that was uncomfortable, but it was better. And then it was to uh, sit up just enough where I can get my shoulders off the back of the bed. 
And I, I did that. And then I was like, okay, now I want to reach across my body. And I did that. So after that, it was just like figuring out what I'm going to be doing regarding recovery next. Yeah. And then you, I mean, you spent a significant amount of time at Walter Reed. I was inpatient at Walter Reed for uh, four months, and then I got moved into a Fisher house and stayed there for six months. Yeah. Yep. When did you move to the Fisher house? Do you remember? Like, what month was it? Oh, boy. Um, I got I got to Walter Reed, I, I believe it was April 1st or 2nd. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was midsummer. Yeah. It was like, it was like mid latest summer. Uh, I remember that because it was, it was really hot. Walter Reed is a lot hillier than I thought it would be, mm-hmm. uh, which is problematic for being in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It must've been. Because I had left Iraq like two weeks early because I went straight from Iraq to a leadership school Mm -hmm. to Louisiana. And I had never wanted to be back in Iraq more because Louisiana in July is horrible. But then I'm just trying to get the timeline down because when I came out to see you, you were still at Walter Reed, I believe. Yeah, still in in Okay. Yep. So I know that was— That's where we met John Voigt. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That man had the softest hands I've ever felt. <laughs> and you felt a lot of soft <laughs> hands. <laughs> but yeah, um so that you must have been moved to the the Fisher house shortly after that then? I don't know. Probably. And you know, and I think I've talked to you about this before cuz like I'd only been home for maybe a couple of days and then uh Janelle and I packed up the kids and said, we're going to see Kuboy. And we drove. And I would never recommend a long-ass road trip with two young kids in a in a uh, Pontiac Grand Prix. And, uh, I mean, we – and this is just a little side note story that that was during the I-35W uh, bridge collapse, too. Mm-hmm. Because I remember we were in, like, Pennsylvania or some shit. Mm-hmm. And front news was bridge collapse. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like how many more things can go wrong? You know, I'm I'm heading out to see a buddy that, you know, he essentially got blown to shit. Yeah. And then this bridge collapses. But then when we get out there and I see you, I mean, you've got like those pins that you talked about and all this like in your legs and all that. Yeah. External and then, fixators. Yeah. And yeah. then we're taking pictures and I don't have any of those pictures because we went back to the hotel room that night and I formatted the goddamn memory card and erased all of those pictures, every single one. Yeah. And there's no way, because we were leaving the next day, so, like, I don't even have any pictures of us together, Mm -hmm. which really, to this day, still weighs on me Mm -hmm. because one little mistake, but... um. You got to meet some really cool people out there too. Yeah. Oh yeah. A and lot of celebrities. And you now now here's the deal. We're at a minute thirty nine 
for recording. Okay. So I'm going to tell the listeners right now, um, we're going to, with your permission, Mark, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to ask you back for a part two. Yeah. Because I've never, in the 13 previous episodes, I've never had a part two. So <laughs> okay. I want to do a part two. I don't know when that'll happen. Sure. Um, maybe next week. I don't know. We'll we'll talk offline. Yeah. But um, for interest of listeners, because we could talk for three, four hours. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. And we'll do that next time. Well, not three, four hours, but sure. we're going to, we're going to talk about your recovery and what you've been doing now mm-hmm. and the great things that you're doing for the veteran community. And, uh, but like, I just remember you when you said you were out at Walter Reed and in walks Leslie Frazier. Yeah. Professional. Well, the Colts. Yeah. The Colts had just won the Super Bowl. Yes. And a bunch of people from the Colts organization showed up there touring and visiting a bunch of injured vets. And I think it's a really cool story. It's a fun one, yeah. So so before we uh, cut it a little short, I guess. Sure, sure. <laughs> so we can have more stuff to talk about um, in part two. Tell that story because that's a great story. Sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so getting visits from celebrities wasn't uh, an v- uncommon thing. And... What would happen is in the morning, the nurse would show up and they would say, hey, we're going to have the this person show up. Would you like them to visit? And on this day, it was the Indianapolis Colts. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that'd be awesome to meet them. So they're doing their rounds. Uh, we're on Ward 57. That's where the significant injured stayed. Uh, we're pretty proud of our area. <laughs> um So I'm in my room and gosh, there were probably like eight to ten guys in um in uh colts uniforms walking in and and they were just energetic and happy and positive and they had you know a bounce in their step and they all kind of walk in and they're like hey man it's great to meet you yeah i'm like yeah good to meet you guys and like this guy just says to me straight up he was like so are you a colts fan and i'm like well i am today (laughs) but uh and they kind of laughed and chuckled. And I and then I pointed at my wall right behind me. I said, but my heart belongs to the Vikings because I had a big Vikings poster on my wall. And then they all started going, oh, 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 shit. Oh, come on. And, uh, and this, uh, you know, tall gentleman in the back kind of steps forward and he uh, reaches down, shakes my hand. He's like, Marcus, I, my name's Leslie Frazier. Uh, it's really nice to meet you. I was the uh, defensive coordinator for the Colts, and I just got hired on to be the defensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings. Here's my card. Give me a call sometime. I'll, I'd love to bring you to a game. And I'm like, dude, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I got to meet Leslie Frazier there, um, and he you know, like I actually lost his card. <laughs> um, I also met Ed Hockley and, and he was a really, really fantastic guy too. I lost his card too. He told me that he would bring me to a game. He was like, what's one game that you would like to go to? And I was like, a Vikings game in Lambeau field. And he was like, give me a call. I'm going to make that happen for you. And I, and I lost his number, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just serendipitously, I ran into Brad Childress, um, at the airport 
uh, in January, and it was right after they had lost a playoff game. Uh, and I, and I, I didn't walk up to him or anything like that. You know, I'm, I don't pester yeah. uh, celebrities. Yeah. But as we were waiting for the rental car, as I was waiting for the rental car, uh, Brad Childress comes out and it's just he and I, and he just struck up a conversation with me and we're sitting there chatting and talking and we probably talked for about 10 minutes and, and like five minutes into the conversation, I asked him, I was like, so, I actually met Leslie Frazier at Walter Reed and he gave me his card, but I lost it. Like you wouldn't have a way to get a hold of him, would you? And he gave me his secretary's card and said, give her a call. She'll get the message to Frazier. And, you know, if everything's legit and on the level, he'll give you a call back. And uh, yeah, sure. Shit. He gave me a call back and I got to, he brought me to a Saturday morning practice and um and then went to the game afterwards and yeah it was it was a good time he's a really really quality human being now was that was that the only time you had gone to practice no no there were uh there were two times there was yeah. so that so you had gone twice then so he got you to two games then yeah he got me there he got me there once when he was the defensive coordinator mm-hmm. and then he I, i'm pretty sure it was when he was the coach yeah and, um, and I got to ride your coattails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. It, and you know, the, the two times that I was there, um, you know, the friendliest player on that team by far, just super nice, super friendly, stayed the longest was, uh, Adrian Peterson. Yep. He was so yep. just fan oriented because so backstory, when I said I rode Mark's coattails, <laughs> I was dating someone from the state of Washington mm. at the time um, who, well, Mark's responsible for that too, mm-hmm. but we'll talk about that in maybe <laughs> in part, part two. two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember the, I don't remember who the lady was, but we're there for the practice at Winter Park and we're watching it mm-hmm. and all the players are going out. People are high-fiving and there's some, I think there's some make-a-wish yep. kids there and all that stuff. And, you know, the players are walking out. And, uh, you know, talking about Adrian Peterson and he's talking to everybody and she goes, oh, don't worry, he'll get to you. He, he doesn't leave until the rest, until he meets every single person here. So you'll get to meet him. Yeah. And that was just like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, there, that can't be, but no shit. There he was. Mm -hmm. He finally got to our little group there Mm -hmm. and, uh, he took time to engage every single person talk to every single person. And, uh, that was just, that was a great moment, not only because I got to spend it with you, mm-hmm. but just to see his side of it, he could have been like, okay, Hey, thanks. But like just chilling with everyone. And I don't know, do you watch the, have you, did you ever watch the TV show, the league? I, started watching it only because of the experience that you had with Adrian okay. Peterson. Yeah. And I mean, so for those of you that never watched the league, it's a fantasy football show and Adrian Peterson made an appearance in it. And this was, I had, I no shit. I had watched it like a week prior and I didn't even talk football with the guy. I'm like, I saw you on the league yeah. and he's like, Hey man, how'd I do? And I go, dude, you were great. You killed it. And he's like, Oh, I was nervous and all that. So it was, it was just a cool experience to be there and to see that kind of human 
side. And I have no doubt that Leslie Frazier would have been the exact same way because of your experience at Walter Reed. And my experience with John Voigt when we were there, um, I don't know. Did you did you meet him as well? Oh, did yeah. You? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he spent was, a lot of time in my room. Yeah, he was just the, like I said, the softest hands ever. Well, Al Franken, <laughs> Al Franken has some soft hands too. But, okay, never um, met him. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, just a super nice guy, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I guess that's kind of a silver lining um, to some of that stuff. Yeah, I think most of the celebrities that I met were all very, very kind and, you know, just really, really nice and yeah. um, interested. And, you know, I met uh, I met Ben Stein. He was super nice. <laughs> um, I met President George W. That was a little weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about that stuff later, yeah. too. Uh, but with the Vikings, like... I met Brett Favre. He was awkward as hell. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, Leslie Frazier's like, hey, Marcus, Marcus, show Brett Favre what happened to your legs. And I'm like, all right. So, I, you know, it's winter time, so I'm wearing jeans. Yeah. I lift up my jeans, and Brett Favre is, like, looking at my legs like, uh... That's some weird shit, man. I I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. And I'm like, whatever, Brett Favre. You're like, hey, Brett Favre, we trained in your hometown for six months or for five months. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, it, and it and it creates some understanding about your personality. Yeah. You know? I mean, not not saying. Uh, well, you know, apologies to you, uh, Brett Favre, Packers fans, Vikings fans, whatever. But uh, <laughs> Mark is just uh, he's he's spilling the truth right now. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So, all right, we've got plenty of talk, plenty to talk about sure. in part two. Now, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. This episode, now, would you be able to come back for back-to-back episodes? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll make that happen. So you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, next week with the uh, episode, it'll be part two with uh, Marcus Kuboy. Now, we've come to the point of the podcast where... Um, who do you want to give shout outs to? Because there's, I mean, you've said that there's been so many people that have helped you and we're not going to do like the, the Grammys or whatever, where, sure. you know, it's just going to be like, I'm going to have to play music to get you to shut up, to talk about giving shout outs. But who sticks out in your mind as like, has, has been there, has been there and been there and been there and has helped you through your life journey, you know, from, you know, growing up all the way up to today. Like, are there any, first off, are there any shout outs you want to give? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, that, that's actually a really easy one for me. That would be my little brother, uh, Kip Kuboy. Kippy. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, he, um, you know, like when, when we were growing up, we had Pretty typical older brother, younger brother relationship. I was getting each other's faces and fighting, but also hanging out and, you know, having each other's backs. Uh, but uh, right before we deployed out, um, he was roofing and he, it was uh, March 3rd of 2005. He brought a bundle of shingles up to the top of a roof 
and it had uh, it, it it was foggy the night before, and the fog froze, and he hit a patch of ice on the roof, and he slid down, and he ended up falling 32 feet onto frozen ground. He broke his uh, right arm. Uh, he broke his humerus, his ulna and radius. He broke his back in a bunch of places. His scapula was uh, uh, broken right down the center. He broke his hips. Like He was just in rough shape. As I'm in Iraq, he was recovering from his own injury. And at the time that I ended up getting hurt, uh, he was just starting to look for a job. Uh, it'd been like a full year. And he was told about me being injured. And what the army did was they gave him the opportunity to move to Walter Reed and to be my, uh, my PCA. Mm-hmm. You know, my primary or yeah, personal care attendant. Mm-hmm. Uh, they told him like, well, we're going to give you a hotel room right here on the hospital base. Uh, we're going to give you $85 a day as a stipend. Just make sure that your brother gets to all of his appointments and give him support and stuff like that. And he was, he was crucial. Uh, he was very, um, you know, pertinent in my, my mental health, you know, like when, you know, I had some pretty dark days, as as you can imagine, anybody mm-hmm. yeah, would. Absolutely. Uh, and like he basically forced me out of a lot of that kind of going down to those dark places and, and kind of staying there. And the fact that he had been through something that was, you know, a significant injury like a year beforehand, you know, it, it gave him the, the, the clout, you know, that wouldn't have been there otherwise. But yeah, no, he just, he showed up. He was, he was stellar. Good. So always has, you know, we still have a great relationship today. Try to get together and talk. He's one of the most honorable people mm-hmm. that I know. Yeah. He's a good dude. Yeah. For sure. A good dude. High, high quality. Yeah. And I've only met him, you know, a handful of times, Yeah, but uh, it's always been great conversation and uh, just a downright good time with him. Yeah. So. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So I also like to ask my guests each time, give me something positive that happened to you today. Today? I got my teeth cleaned. All right. <laughs> so I think that's probably one of the weirdest positive things of the day, but hey, yeah. that's positive. Hey, it's a good thing. Got your teeth you cleaned. I got, I got teeth to be cleaned. Well, so. okay. So that's a that's a good spin on yeah, it. Yeah. You didn't have to clean dentures. Correct. You got to have your teeth, your own teeth. My own teeth. Cleaned. You know, they're, they're, it's not 100% enamel, but. <laughs> right. Perfect. They're still mine. Well, that's, that's great. <laughs> Well, we've got all of that covered, and we've already covered that uh, we're going to have a part two. So uh, we'll schedule that. And uh, part two, ladies and gentlemen, will be next week. So make sure you stay tuned for that one. Uh, but in closing, Mark, Marcus, whatever you want me to call you, uh, Koo Boy, yeah. uh, thanks, do it all. thanks for agreeing to come on and sharing your story. Um. It was a good stroll down memory lane. Mm. And there's a few things that I picked up that I, you know, either forgot or I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the recruiting stuff, I didn't know that. The firefighter stuff, I sure as shit didn't know. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, that's cool. That's cool. So, but, uh, 
Thank you again. I Absolutely. really appreciate it. And uh, ladies and gentlemen out there, listeners, uh, if you have any questions or comments about today's podcast or want to be considered as a guest, please email us at tellmystory76 at gmail.com. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time with Kuboy Part 2 on Tell Your Story. All right.